If you remember last week, our title was Church Essentials. The uh, subtitle was What is Church Leadership? A Charge to Church Leadership. And for that, we looked at Acts 20, and we looked at how Paul led the elders of the church in Ephesus. That was the basic outline of last week. We could break it into two things. There was Paul's example, and then there was Paul's exhortation. And Paul's example, we could pull out four of them very quickly, and that is he was humble. He came in all humility. He was resolute and absolute in his message, and that was the message of the gospel of salvation. He was absolute in his commitment. He was committed even to the point of death. And we also looked at, hey, that's really no different than what Jesus said to his disciples. Whoever gives up his life for me and the gospel will find it. And then last of Paul's examples was his example. He was an intentional example, and that's how he led. He led by example. And then there was Paul's exhortation, and that is to be vigilant and to guard both the leadership themselves and the church. And as we were just talking about, as Mal was mentioning this morning, the water is rising around us and the island is getting smaller and smaller. And at the same time, even from within the church, from within the church, there's drifting, there's peeling away from the truth. So we need to be vigilant. It never ends. We can never relax. We think, you know, as a church leader, I often think, man, if we could just solve this problem, then it would just be smooth sailing. Uh Uh-uh. It's never that way. We have to be vigilant. And then the other is to be a shepherd. And of course, other than guarding, which is what shepherds do, they also lead and feed and care for the flock. I think what we need to take away from this, not just as leaders, but as a church too, and that is for us, from Paul's day till now, nothing has really changed. Nothing has changed. Uh, Ecclesiastes, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And it's true in the church too. The gospel message has not changed. The urgency of the ministry has not changed. The needs of the church to be led and fed and cared for have not changed. Despite all of our technological advances, those things are unchanging. They're the same. And one thing that technological advances do bring And that is the dangers of false teaching. While they haven't changed, they've just become ubiquitous. I mean, they are coming at us from every direction. It used to be error or heresy would kind of take a couple hundred years to develop and run. Now it takes a couple of weeks. And it's not just one. It's all the old ones and the new ones coming around together. So the need for vigilance and discernment has not changed. And... When we looked at the verse to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood, and to understand how valuable, how precious the church is in the whole scheme of the universe, and that needs to weigh on us as leaders, that we've been entrusted with this precious, valuable thing that Jesus gave his life for. And the gravity of that, the gravity of that verse needs to pull every church leader to their knees. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. And that responsibility has not changed. 
So there's a lot of other important aspects that we could look at with church leadership. But what I want to do today is move on to what I'm going to call true church membership. True church membership. You know, leaders are called to be examples, right? I mean, leaders, I mean, just the very definition of leader. What does that imply? It means there's people following. Now, the, the responsibility of a leader is not to order around or lord it over, as we saw from 1 Peter. The responsibility of a leader is to lead by example, like Paul said. Leaders are examples of those who follow the chief shepherd. And they lead others to follow the chief shepherd in the same way. It's, it's all about following the chief shepherd. It's not about following the leaders themselves for their own sake. That's what Paul said the false teachers did. Remember he said, they draw away the disciples after them. Leaders, rather, are examples of walking in the truth under the authority of the word of God. And they teach, guide, and encourage others to walk in the way of truth, under the authority of God's word. So basically, leaders are disciples making disciples who in turn need to be making more disciples. And it's true that leaders bear greater responsibility. We know that James said that those who teach will incur or will uh, have a stricter judgment. But we are all called to the same faith and discipleship. And I was talking about this panel of uh, church leaders I was listening to last week. And one of the points that came up was, how do you measure the success of leadership? How do you measure the success of leadership in a church? And one of the pastors said, you know, it's not shown by how many people come to your church or by how many people say they liked your message. The real evidence of success in a church is how much the people who are there are growing spiritually. That's the benchmark. So, as we move on now to true church membership, to the concept of what is real church membership, I want us to hang on to that verse from Acts 20, 28. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And let that weigh on all of us and uh, let it sink in, leaders and church members alike. It's full of implications. I mean, for church leaders, it just reminds us that it's not our church. It's, it's God's church. It's Jesus' church. He not only made it, he redeemed it. He purchased it. And it's a tremendous honor and responsibility. And we need, as leaders, to take that responsibility very, very seriously. But the implications for the church as a whole are numerous as well. And they're also serious. And, and they're wonderful when you think of what immense value we are to him. You know, it's... You can't get your mind around it, really. It's kind of like John said in 1 John 3, how great the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. That's what he says. He has to reiterate it because that is true. That's what it really is. And that verse also, really, it defines what the true church is in its very essence. The church of God, which he purchased with his blood. So I want to um, pull that apart a little bit. What is the true church? I looked in the dictionary, and there's a whole bunch of different definitions of what the church is, as you can imagine. Number one definition was the building where you know religious uh, services happen. That, I mean, every one of them was like that. Only two of the dictionaries I checked 
got even close. Can I offer a little bit more of a biblical definition of not what, but who the true church is? So before we can look at church membership, we need to kind of establish what is the true church. So the true church is the body of people called by God out of the world. That's what church means in Greek. The Greek word ecclesia, ek means out. And then ecclesia or kaleo means to be called out. From So it means literally the called out ones. Called by God out of the world, having come to Jesus Christ through repentance and the obedience of faith, having been purchased by his blood for eternal salvation and now belong to him. Paul said we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Peter said it's not with gold or silver that you have been bought but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the precious blood of the Lamb of God. And then having received spiritual rebirth and having the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. And that's got to be a reality. That's not something we can generate ourselves. That is something that God gives. And it has a real manifestation in our lives that makes us real, that makes us different than a religion sense. So church is not defined by where we meet or how we organize or even by the activities that we do, but it's who we are. That's who the church is and nothing less than that. So now that we've established what the true church is, now we can look at what true church membership is. And of course, I'm sure you know I'm not talking about the application form and then interviewing with the English council. And again, you know, like church leadership, true church membership That's a huge topic, and it's probably even bigger than church leadership, so we're not going to get anywhere near being comprehensive on this. So I want to take one slice of it, and uh, to do that, let's stay with the church in Ephesus, not in Acts, but Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. The book of Ephesians is very simple in its structure. Chapter 1, 2, and 3 is basically descriptive. Paul talks about what it means to be in Christ, and what we've been saved from, and what we've been saved to. And then Paul's thankfulness and Paul's prayers. Two prayers by Paul in chapters 1 and 3. And then chapter 4 marks the transition. And the transition point is therefore. And then the last three chapters, chapter 4, 5, and 6, are basically prescriptive. It means they're instructional. And they lay out some action points for what chapters 1, 2, and 3 mean. It's kind of the, the real living implications of what chapter 1, 2, and 3 mean. In the same way, we describe the true church. Now we can look at, okay, now how does that look? What does that actually mean for us? In a way of review here, because we really need to set up verse 15 and 16. So there's going to be a lot of material up here. So hang with me, bear with me, and uh, can everybody see the screen okay? This is going to be very graphics-dependent today. So if I'm in the I'm going to move back just a little bit then. Now I'm in your way. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go down from verse 1 to 7, and then I'm going to pick it up from verse 11 and then through to 16. And I'm going to use the ESV. I usually use the NAS, but then we use the ESV today because the wording is just a little bit easier to follow. And there's some really long sentences in this passage. Uh, In fact, verses 11 to 14 is one sentence, and it's, it's 93 words long. So, 
here we go. Ephesians 4, starting verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. There's Paul's example. With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, here's the basis of the unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, as seven ones, who is over all and through all and in all. Is everybody following? Really? Really? (laughs) Who is over all, through all, and in all. And if you want to back that up, you can look at the first chapter of Ephesians and the first chapter of Colossians. But, and here, this is equally important, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. The unity of the body and the individuality of each member are important. All right? In fact, Romans 12, 4 to 6, really brings this balance in. For just as we have many members in one body, that's our physical body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. Now, I need to move on, but just keep that Romans 12 verse because we're going to come back to that concept when we get in a little bit further. Now, what I'm going to do from here is I'm going to break this out. I'm going to break this into phrases, into a phrase-by-phrase arrangement, and hopefully it can pull it apart a little bit that we can get an easier grasp on following the flow of this. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, or shepherd teachers, or pastor teachers, some translations, and we looked last June, too, at like, okay, where do these apostles and prophets fit in now? We can get some help two chapters back. And Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says, but you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so the apostles and prophets to us largely have become the scriptures. The early church in Acts, they devoted themselves to fellowship, the apostles' teaching, prayer, and the breaking of bread. Those people could hear the apostles. We read them. And that's one reason why we are determined as a church to stand on the scripture. Because that is the apostles' teaching. That is the faith once for all handed down to the saints So there's the church leadership, and Christ gives them, and we saw last week that Paul told the Ephesian elders that it's the Holy Spirit who appoints you. It's the Holy Spirit who made you overseers. Now, the apostles and prophets, they fulfilled their purpose in laying the foundation. That's what we have in Scripture. Now, this is where it starts getting relevant to uh, church membership. He gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds and teachers to equip the saints, 
to equip the saints for ministry. You know, we often call pastors ministers, and we expect them to do the ministry for all of us. But remember that grace and gifting, grace and gifting was given to each one of us, not just the pastors and teachers. That's one gift, but we've all been given grace and gifting. 1 Corinthians uh, 12.7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So we're all being equipped, or we should be being equipped, for ministry. You know, there's no gift of church attendance or church attender. There's no gift of observer. We're gifted to serve one another. We're gifted to equip the saints for the work of ministry for, and here's our purpose, for building up the body of Christ. That's what we're equipped for, to build up the body of Christ. We're all in this. We're all in this together. You know, we often, I think, we had the tendency to see the pastor as the spiritual leader. You know, he's kind of like the priest. And then the deacons and elders are kind of like the, the semi-spiritual leaders. We, we do more um, unspiritual things like uh, church budget or, um, you know, organizing schedules and things like that. And then the rank and file members, well, <laughs> we're just us. I mean, but you know what? We're all Saints. We're called saints. We're saints. We're called saints here. I know, Saint Kent just doesn't quite roll. It just doesn't sound good. Well, Saint Chuck, Saint Dave, Saint, Saint, Saint Beth. Saint Beth works. Saint Beth. We've got two Saint Beths here. We need to move on. <laughs> For building up the body of Christ. We all, each one of us has a part in this. Until, there's a goal, until we all, until we all attain. Let's stop there. This is what we were talking about at the beginning. We are all called to the same faith and discipleship. We are all called to the same faith and discipleship. It's not about the leadership being called to some high spiritual level and everyone else called to a lower level. Paul uh, talked in Colossians. He says, Admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. That's the end game. That's the goal. This is all review, keep in mind. This is still my introduction. Let's look at some of the specifics here. And I'm going to go through this pretty quickly. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and that goes back to verse 5, one Lord, one faith, all those ones. The faith, and that's the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. And just remember, a couple of years back, we talked about what knowledge. There's two different words for knowledge. One is gnosis, and the other is epignosis. And this one is true knowledge, the deep, intimate, thorough knowledge. And knowledge of the Son of God. And then two, another two, two, 
mature manhood, to mature manhood, full grown, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's where we're going. That's where we're going. Sometimes a negative helps contrast the positive. And speaking of maturity, this is from Hebrews, and Ron preached on this last year. The writer of Hebrews is admonishing the church that he's writing to. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is, listen, unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their, mark this, powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And by the way, he's not saying that we should let go of the elementary teaching of Christ. We need to hang on to those. Those are important. But we can't get stuck there. We need to move on to maturity. And that's where Ephesians goes next. So that we may be children. No longer. <laughs> so I'm seeing everybody's still with me here. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. And you remember last week we looked at Paul. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So, leaders, yes, we do have a great responsibility to guard, but the ideal is that we all attain. We all attain to this. We all attain to being able to discern because we live in a world of human cunning and craftiness in deceitful schemes. That's lies. Lies. We live, we're surrounded by lies. Verse 15 and 16. Rather, rather. This is a template of how the church should operate. Speaking the truth. Speaking the truth. Further down in Ephesians 4, verse 25, Paul says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor. For, why? We are members of one another. We are members of one another. So speak truth. So much can be said about that. Untruth has no place. It has no place in God's church. God is, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. Jesus, this is Jesus' body. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. How many times does the word truth appear in the book of John? Untruth, it does damage. It does damage whether in the short run or the long run. You know, truth is, is a little bit like bamboo. I had this bamboo in my yard years ago. And I mean, it's, it's, it's this ridiculous stuff. I'd cut it off and I'd bury it and it would keep coming back. It would keep coming up. 
And you know, truth's a little bit the same way. It will come out. Jesus said, there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. And there's nothing covered up that will not be known. So speaking the truth, but speaking the truth in love. I'm not sure there's any other word that characterizes what the church should be more than this one. In love. Paul said that if he had all faith and all prophecy and all knowledge, but didn't have love, he didn't have anything. And that means if we don't have love, we're not accomplishing anything here. I know that's not the case with us. So truth and love. You know, love does not weaken or mitigate truth, but it gives it in the right way. It gives it with the right heart. It gives it with the right motive. So truth by itself can just be hard and cold. I mean, we can bludgeon people with the truth. But at the same time, love by itself can be squishy and, and uh, subjective and kind of ignore things that are, that are wrong or damaging. So we need that balance. You know, John says Jesus embodied that. He was full of grace and truth. He's our example. And we need to aspire to both of these. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up. We are to grow up so that we may no longer be children. We're to grow up in every way. In every way. And where do you find scripture references for that? I haven't got enough screen space to put that up. So let's go back to verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we can grow up in every way. We can grow up in every way. Okay, let's move that over there. Into him. Into him who is the head into Christ. The fact that true believers are in Christ. I mean, just read Ephesians 1. Read John 17. Christ is the head of the church. And Colossians 1, let me just read this. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God Firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's Jesus. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is our head. That's our head. The firstborn from the dead. The firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. And then Ephesians 1. says, God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. He has put all things in subjection under his feet, and, here we go, gave him as head over all things to the church. What does the church have? What do we have? The fullness of him who fills all in all. From whom, okay, from the head, from whom the whole body, that's us, joined and held together. Joined and held together. You know, a dismembered body is kind of a horrifying concept. Even if we use the word disjointed, 
it doesn't sound quite as bad. A, a disjointed body is totally non-functioning. I mean, what good is a forearm over there and a, and, and a thigh over there and a, and a you know, toe there and a few fingers scattered around? I mean, it's absolutely useless. We need to be connected. We need to be connected. And not just connected to each other, but connected to the head as well. Okay, so joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. The NAS says, which every joint supplies. And uh, I'm just going to go over to um, Colossians here, because Colossians 2.19, he uses the same analogy. He uses it in a negative context, but he says, not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments. So does that not tell you that disconnection from the body has implications for our connection to the head. There's more to it. There's more to it. We're all connected, the head and the body together. Doesn't that make Hebrews 10:24 make sense? Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, I've heard people say things like, oh, I can skip church and and just go and commune with God in nature. Yeah, maybe you can. It's God's creation. But that is no replacement. That's no substitute that doesn't take away the importance of communing with the body, with Christ's body. I mean, how else? How else can we do all of the one another's? How else do we do the, all the one another's? You can't do this on the hiking trail. I don't know how many there are about love one another. That's far and away the most. There's more. If we belong to Jesus Christ, if we belong to the head, then by default we belong to each other. We belong to the body. Romans 12, 6 again, to go back to that. For just as we have many members in one body and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Or individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. It's a mandate. It's expected. It's the default. What holds it together? The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what holds it together. Joints are a really, really important part of the body. If they don't connect the body, that's a, that's a big problem. But if, doesn't this kind of speak to um, flexibility, bearing with one another, maintaining the unity of the Spirit, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. All right. When each part, when each part is working properly, when each part is working properly, doesn't this also confirm that every part is important? 1 Corinthians 12, 18, but now God has placed, God has placed the members, each one of them in the body. It's God who places us in the body just as he desired. This is God's design. 
It's God who decides who should do what. And we should not be AWOL. Everybody know the word AWOL? <laughs> Absent without leave is a military term. And we know too. I mean, just in everyday life, if one part of our body isn't working or missing, it's debilitating. It's debilitating. And if several parts aren't working or missing, it can be disabling. So it's true, other parts of your body can get stronger and can compensate, but it's still an impairment. The church is no different. We need each other. We need all of each other. We need all of each other. We need to care for each other. Pastor Ron can't single-handedly care for the church body. We need to care for each other. No one person has the capacity to do that. And I will say, and this is true, MCC has many gifted people who, who do ministry often behind the scenes without fanfare and without, without acknowledgement. And that is really valuable in a church body. So thank you for serving those of you who do that. It's an incredibly valuable thing. We do fall short. We do fail. I know I do. But here's the outcome. We're almost through. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Period. Full circle. It comes back to love. Jesus giving the leadership. He's the head. The leadership equipping the church body for ministry, the church body building up the church body. And love flows through every part of that, every aspect of it. First Peter 1.22, he says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. And that's what true church membership looks like. You know, I, I, I tried to plow through a lot today, and I know this is a lot to absorb. There's some really long sentences, but I hope that by pulling some of these things out, if we can kind of pull it apart, it actually makes a more complete picture. And by the way, that's where we're going to be in two weeks. You know, if there's um, anything uh, that I hope you can take away from this week and last week, it's this. If you could understand a little bit more the incredible value of the church. It's the only institution that Jesus promised to build. It's the only institution he left here. You know, you look at the top of that chart there, and you understand that it says, in him. We are in him, in Christ you understand that that's the Son of God. That's the very Son of God who created all things. He's the maker of all things. Everything was made by Him and for Him. And He holds everything together. And yet, He suffered. He suffered and shed His blood. He suffered and shed His blood to purchase the church. To purchase the church to redeem the church. The creator, the giver of life, was dead. He was dead. 
for us. That's not, that's not a, a theological concept that has a you know, long Latin name. It's real. Do we grasp what an incredible privilege it is to belong to him? To belong to his body? You know, there's, there's this ongoing competition between Google and Amazon and Apple. You know, what's the most valuable company? Compared to the church, it's not even in the same realm. It's a different order of magnitude. The church belongs directly to the Son of God, bought by his blood, and he's in it. The church is eternal. Those companies are going to all be gone. Just a matter of time. So if anything I could ask is whether we do this consciously or unconsciously, please don't undervalue or treat as secondary importance the church. Don't undervalue the church. Don't let yourself treat it as something routine or mundane or something that we do when we have time. Do we realize what we're part of? And if the church outranks Amazon and Google and Apple, how much less does your company or my school or my career rank in comparison? We know the church is not a building. It's not even an organizational structure. We know that. It's not even an event. It's not a a one-and-a-half-hour event, an hour-and-40-minute event (laughs) on Sunday morning. It's Christ's own body, and we're part of it. He purchased us, and that's 168 hours a week. We're his. We're each other's. And you guys, this is not some underhanded way to kind of chase everybody into attending more activities and doing more work for the church. It's coming to have a true perspective on what the church really is and who we really are. And it's being where he's placed you and using the gifts he's given you to build his body. We looked at First Peter last week and Peter said to the leaders that you lead voluntarily, not under compulsion, but with joy. And that is a heart thing. It's a heart thing. Our local church here isn't perfect by any stretch. But we want to operate according to the truth. And we want to grow up to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And my prayer is that every one of us will want to be part of that. And for those of you who may not be sure that you're really part of the true church, remember this. Those doors are not the doors to the true church. Those are the doors to the place where the MCC body meets. But you're in the right place because we can tell you how to find the door to the true church. And there's only one. There's only one door to the true church. And that is in your heart when you ask Jesus Christ to come in to you. And you know the thing is, he does. He comes into you. Ask him to to forgive your sins. Ask him to to make you clean, to give you a new heart and a new spirit. And you know what? He does come in. Do you know what else? You also find that you're in him and that you're in the church and that you have all of 
you have all of him and you have all of this. So don't let, don't let less important things hinder you from taking what's important. Just, you know, this Keith Green song has been running through my head all week. One of the lines is, they throw away things that matter and hold on to things that don't. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. Let me pray. Father, you purchased the church in giving Jesus your son, Jesus giving himself, giving his life for the church to redeem us to you. Lord, I pray that we would understand what a gift that is, what an what a unbelievable reality that is, that we can be called the children of God and that as Jesus prayed for the unity, that, that we would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. Lord, help us to grow to that in reality. Help us to manifest that. Help us to abide in the vine that we would bear fruit. And help us to not give up meeting together, but to stimulate one another toward love and good deeds and to encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day approaching. Lord, we know that all of this will end. But the church has been bought for eternity. Thank you. In Jesus' strong name, amen.